Hello then and welcome to Passing the Baton Series 2 and this one is October the 31st 2009. The title of it is I Will Not Leave You As Orphans. So let's just have a pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come and help us understand. Father thank you so much, so much. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you love us so much that it's your delight to reveal Jesus to us. It's your delight to open the Word of God to us because you wrote it. I ask you that you'll be so present with us now as I come to talk about you and your role in the earth and who you are and how we should relate to you. I just want to say that you are the best friend I have. I love you so much, so much. I value you so very much. And with the psalmist I say, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You are the most precious gift from the Father. So I ask that you will open the scriptures to us, open, open scriptures, open understanding, open ears. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So this is now the third study in a series of three. Um, the first one was Who is Building the House? This was followed by the title The Holiness of God and Our Sanctification. And we started that teaching which was last time with the question What is the chief end of man? And we answered it with The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That which he should seek after as his chief happiness. In that declaration we have two very important ideas. The first is that our chief end is to glorify God. And the second that we should seek after him as our chief happiness. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. Object of my first desire, Jesus crucified for me, all to happiness aspire, only to be found in Thee. Thee to praise and Thee to know, constitute my bliss below. Thee to see and Thee to love, constitute my bliss above. Whilst I feel thy love to me, every object teems with joy. May I ever walk with thee, for tis bliss without alloy. Let me but thyself possess, total sum of happiness. Perfect peace I then shall prove, heaven below and heaven above. That was written by a dear man of the 18th century called Augustus Toplady, who wrote many hymns. And he was in pursuit of God. He was seeking after God as his chief happiness. Those of you who will have taken me up on the suggestion to read J.I. Packer's book on holiness will have found that he tells us quite clearly that drawing near to God is something we do as a conscious choice because we're the redeemed of the Lord and we begin to draw near with thanksgiving for our salvation. And here we come to a problem. If we haven't truly understood what our salvation is all about, we will not feel thankful or even grateful. 
So to start this study I want to put some building blocks into place to help us glorify God and enjoy him forever and make him our chief source of happiness. Let's just take a moment now to go over our salvation. We were born sinners by nature, dominated and driven from the start, albeit unconsciously, by self-seeking, self-serving, and even, if we may say if we're really honest, self-deifying motives and cravings. When I say self-deifying, I mean we make ourselves God. The Bible, functioning as a mirror for self-knowledge, shows us playing God, making ourselves, our wishes and our advancement the centre of everything. That's the result of the fall. When the Holy Spirit moved on us, we didn't make a decision, we didn't make a commitment. We realised that we needed a saviour or we were bound for a lost eternity. The Spirit's convicting and convincing work showed us our helpless estate and we asked for forgiveness and cleansing which was freely given to us by Jesus' shed blood. 1 John 16, 8-11 in the New American Standard says this, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Drawn by the Spirit, washed in the blood, saved and sanctified, hallelujah. But that was just the start of our journey. From this position of rebirth from above, we began to make conscious decisions towards God, not away from him. J.I. Packer puts it like this, One way or another, out of changed hearts, there issues a commitment to live changed lives, while the spirit within us witnesses both to Jesus' reality as a mighty saviour who is there for us, and to our own renewal as penitent sinners who have now made him the object of our wholehearted loyalty. So as we saw last time, the divine agenda for the rest of my life on earth is my sanctification. However, if we are made by some agent to feel frustrated that we have not received what others have received, or are not experiencing what others appear to be experiencing, we again become self-centred rather than God-centred, pursuing our own agenda instead of that which God has for us. A little later on we'll see there are more dangers for us in pursuing that which God has not given or allowed us. In our efforts to obtain that which we think we do not have, we frustrate the grace of God upon our lives and render ourselves impotent in the battle which rages around us. In other words, we've been had by the father of lies. Robbed of our joy and our salvation and every spiritual blessing in Christ which the father wishes to bestow upon us, because Satan has had us drop our gaze from Jesus to ourselves. The truth of the Christian life is that it is a life of faith and fact, not feeling. We take what God says by faith, 
and it becomes a fact. As we walk on in love and obedience, feelings will follow. But first the choices of faith and obedience are the keys and the mainspring of our desires. Again J.I. Packer sums it up concisely. Being united to Christ in new birth through the regenerating work of the Spirit has so changed our nature that our heart's deepest desire, the dominant passion that rules and drives us now, is a copy, faint but real, of the desire that drove our Lord Jesus. That was the desire to know, trust, love, obey, serve, delight, honour, glorify and enjoy his heavenly Father. A multifaceted, many-layered desire for God and for more of him than has been enjoyed so far. The natural way for Christians to live is to let this desire determine and control what they do, so that the fulfilling of the longing to seek, know and love the Lord becomes the mainspring of their life. Real holiness is a cheerful matter of following one's heart in thinking and planning and prayerfully doing what comes most naturally at heart level, namely praising God and loving and serving him and others, wholehearted pursuit of God and godliness according to the natural desire of the regenerate heart is the foundation of holy living. God has given us a new heart, a good heart. We get to choose whether we live from this or not. Because we live in an instant society the whole issue has spilled over into our walk with God and has caused in us a sinful reaction because we don't get what we want immediately. The enemy laughs. Beloved, he's robbing you. The thief comes, Jesus said, but to steal, kill and destroy. John 10.10 10 in the New International Version The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And James enjoins us in James 4.8 to come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double-minded. Double-mindedness is unbelief. Hard words but true. If we would but begin by faith to adore God for his surpassing greatness be thankful for our salvation, exalt Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, we would find ourselves in wholehearted pursuit of God and godliness, which is the natural desire of the regenerated soul. The other factor which we need to explore is that of which I call the elder brother syndrome. In this we're like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son. The words are familiar to us all. Luke 15:31 in the New American Standard Bible. And he said to him, Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. The elder son thought he was serving his father faithfully for many years, but it was in the spirit of slavery or bondage that he served not in the spirit of a much-loved child. 
His unbelief blinded him to the understanding of his father's love and kindness, and he was unable to see that his father was ready all the time to give him not only one kid or calf, but as many as he could wish. The elder son had complained and said that though his father had made a feast and had killed the fatted calf for the prodigal, he'd never given him even a kid that he might make merry with his friends. And the answer father gives him is, Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. Father is astonished. All that is mine is yours. There cannot be a more wonderful revelation of the Father's heart than this. Though we often speak of the revelation of his heart in the welcome of the prodigal and what he did for him, here we have a far more wonderful revelation of the Father's love in what he says to the elder son who stays at home. You're always with me. Unbroken fellowship with Father is yours. All that is mine is yours. This is the high privilege of every believer, but sometimes our experience falls way below this. Could it be that the elder son simply didn't ask for what he wanted, and indeed didn't think he'd get it if he did, so he never asked and never enjoyed? He continued to live in murmuring and dissatisfaction. Everything was there for the asking. Notice too that the elder son throws the blame on the father. I've tried hard and done my best. I've prayed but God doesn't see fit to give me. We have such wrong thoughts of our gracious father that he would withhold. The answer is I gave you everything in Jesus. Consider for a moment the sun and by that I mean the sun in the sky. It shines on whether you can see it. It shines on whether you can see it or not. You might black out all the windows, declare it's night, but outside the sun still shines. It's not so with us. Sorry, is it not so with us? Father constantly pours his love and blessing on us, just like the sun. But to us, it's night. We can't feel the sun, the warmth. We don't understand that he's pouring his blessing constantly upon us. So if there's a discrepancy between our life and the fulfillment and enjoyment of all God's gracious promises, eek, the fault must lay with us. It's because of our unbelief in the love of God and the power of God and the reality of his promises. Maybe what it simply boils down to is that we don't understand what love is. When Father says he loves us, he is expressing his desire to give himself to us for our highest good. If all this has spoken to you, just take a moment now to confess that sin of unbelief. Father would say to you, repent now and believe that I love you and that all I have is yours. Okay, now you've done that. Let's move on and look at the work of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit's work in a believer's life is not confined simply to conviction and conversion. That's just the beginning of our journey. He has come to inhabit our hearts and reveal the truth to us. God's presence is with us wherever we go, wherever we are. Son, you are always with me. Jesus' last promise to us as believers was this in John 14:18, reading from the Amplified. I will not leave you as orphans, comfortless, desolate, bereaved, forlorn, helpless. I will come back to you. Here Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the night of his crucifixion and he promises that he himself will come back to them though he is going away now. He had been talking about going away which had completely phased his disciples but in going he promises that his father will send someone else just like him and indeed he describes this person as being himself. I will come back to you. Understandably the disciples, much like us today, don't comprehend what's being said but they are sad and full of questions. The person to whom Jesus refers we subsequently discover is the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Truth or the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is co-equal and co-eternal with Jesus and the Father. There's not a hierarchy there. The Godhead is completely co-equal and co-eternal. None is higher or lower than the other. Jesus defers to his Father out of love for him and the Father bestows everything, all authority and power, upon the Son. And the Holy Spirit's role is to speak of Jesus. They are equal in every respect. As I was studying for this message, I found that the Amplified Bible was the best one to flesh out the descriptions of the Holy Spirit in John chapters 14 through chapter 16. In this whole discourse, Jesus keeps coming back to him, the Holy Spirit, describing what role he will have in the believers' lives when he, Jesus, has gone to be with the Father. John 14, 15 and 16 then, in the Amplified Bible. If you really love me, you will keep, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter, counsellor, helper, intercessor, advocate, strengthener, and standby, that he may remain with you forever. John 14:26. But the comforter, counsellor, helper, intercessor, advocate, strengthener, stand by, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, in my place, to represent me and act on my behalf, he will teach you all things, and he will cause you to recall, will remind you of, bring to your remembrance, everything I have told you. John 15:26. But when the Comforter comes, Counselor, Helper, Advocate, Intercessor, Strengthener, Standby, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who comes, proceeds from the Father, he himself will testify regarding me. So here Jesus expands on the role of the Holy Spirit.
is going to testify regarding Jesus. John 16, 1-15 I have told you all these things so that you should not be offended, taken unawares and falter, or be caused to stumble and fall away. I have told you to keep you from being scandalized and repelled. They will put you out of, expel you from, the synagogues. But an hour is coming when whoever kills you will think and claim that he has offered service to God. This is actually happening in Israel right now. The Orthodox Jews are persecuting the Christian Jewish believers in a dreadful way and they are thinking that they are offering service to God. And they will do this because they have not known the Father or me. But I have told you these things now so that when they occur you will remember that I told you of them. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks where are you going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart, taken complete possession of them. However, I am telling you nothing but the truth when I say it is profitable, good, expedient, advantageous for you that I go away. Because if I do not go away, the Comforter, Counselor, Helper, Advocate, Intercessor, Strengthener, Standby will not come to you, into close fellowship with you. But if I go away, I will send him to you, to be in close fellowship with you. And when he comes, he will convict and convince the world and bring demonstration to it about sin, about righteousness uprightness of heart and right standing with God and about judgment about sin because they do not believe in me trust in rely on and adhere to me about righteousness uprightness of heart and right standing with God because I go to my father and you will see me no longer about judgment because the ruler evil genius prince of this world Satan is judged and condemned and sentence is already passed upon him. But I have still many things to say to you, but you are not able to bear them, or take them upon you, or to grasp them now. But when he, the Spirit of Truth, the truth-giving Spirit comes, he will guide you into all the truth, the whole, full truth. For he will not speak his own message on his own authority, but he will tell you whatever he hears from the Father. He will give the message that has been given to him. And he will announce and declare to you the things that are to come, that will happen in the future. He will honour and glorify me, because he will take of, receive, draw upon what is mine, and will reveal, declare, disclose, transmit it to you. Everything that the Father has is mine. That is what I meant when I said that he, the Spirit, will take the things that are mine and will reveal, declare, disclose, transmit it to you. When he comes, he will guide you into all the truth. You won't have the completeness of truth. It's not possible for us to contain that. But he will guide you into 
the truth of that which he wants you to know. I find definitions are very helpful so let's do some of that. It's said of the Holy Spirit that he is helper, counsellor, spirit of truth. The Greek word is parakletos and means a person summoned, called to one side, especially called to one's aid. One who pleads another's cause before a judge, a pleader, counsel for, for defence, legal assistant, an advocate, one who pleads another's cause with one, an intercessor. It's said of Jesus in his exaltation at God's right hand, pleading with God the Father for the pardon of our sins. That's where he acts in his high priestly role. In the widest sense, a helper, succorer, aider, assistant. It is said of the Holy Spirit, destined to take the place of Christ with the apostles after his ascension to the Father, to lead them to a deeper knowledge of the gospel truth and give them divine strength needed to enable them to undergo trials and persecutions on behalf of the divine kingdom. I think I probably got that off of the Blue Letter Bible website um, where they go into things and give you explanations. I can't remember now, I'm afraid. Um, Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words says this. Bear in mind that all these reference books are for the King James Version. Parakletos literally called to one's side i.e. to one's aid is primarily a verbal adjective and suggests a capability or adaptability for giving aid. It was used in a court of justice to denote a legal assistant, counsel for the defence, an advocate, then generally one who pleads another's cause, an intercessor, advocate as in 1 John 2 1 of the Lord Jesus. In the widest sense it signifies a succorer, a comforter. Christ was this to his disciples. By the implication of his word another, which is allos, a-double-l-o-s in the Greek, another of the same sort, not heteros, h-e-t-e-r-o-s, which is different, Comforter, then, when speaking of the Holy Spirit in John 14:16, is speaking of someone exactly the same as. In John 14:26, 15:26, and 16:7, he calls him the Comforter, or Consoler, which corresponds to the name Menahem, M-E-N-A-H-E-M, given by the Hebrews. To the Messiah. So that's the end of the extract from Vines. But isn't it interesting that the word corresponds to the name given by the Jews to the expected Messiah? So the Spirit whom Jesus speaks of is exactly like Him. So if you are a Spirit filled believer, which you are, you have the Spirit of Jesus Christ living inside you. You have everything you will ever need to live and walk the Christ life because he's in you. And you have an advocate, an intercessor, a succorer, a comforter, a cheerer, upper and a consoler. Whatever your need, the Holy Spirit will meet it. 
if you let him. Question. What does he want to be to you right now? And will you let him be that? So Jesus has said, he will not let us or leave us comfortless. Paul ends some of his letters with the words, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. 2 Corinthians 13:14, for example, the grace, favour and spiritual blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the presence and fellowship the communion and sharing together and participation in the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So be it. As Derek Prince would say, just because something is only mentioned once or twice in the Bible, it doesn't mean it isn't important. So although the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is only mentioned here this once, Jesus had a lot to say about it. He implies that this person the Father will send at his request is someone who will be your closest friend and confidant. Someone to whom you can always turn. Someone who will always be there to cheer up and steer, stir up. Someone who will intercede for you. That's what praying in tongues is all about. The Holy Spirit is interceding in accordance with the will of God for you and for others through you. Don't neglect this type of praying. It is so important. Paul tells us that it builds us up in our most holy faith. Jude 1.20 But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Okay. A question which is frequently asked of me, and it comes in many guises, is that whole issue of intimacy or lack of intimacy with God, and walking with the Holy Spirit and how this is to be achieved. Jesus told the disciples he wouldn't leave them as orphans, but he himself would come to them. John 14, 16-19, New American Standard Bible. It's headed up the role of the Spirit. But I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it doesn't see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while the world will see me no longer, but you will see me, because I live you will live also. This glorious promise is ours. He does not leave us as orphans. He comes to us in the role of the Holy Spirit. Because as Graham Cook says, Jesus says, he's better at this next phase than I am. When Jesus left the earth to go back to the Father, his task accomplished, he did not leave us orphans or comfortless. He bestowed upon us the most precious gift of all gifts, that of himself, in the form of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal with Father and Son. We need never feel alone because Jesus is with us and in us. 
We know him because he abides, lives, dwells and remains with us. He's in us. However, I don't feel close to the Father. I find the whole idea of intimacy with the Holy Spirit difficult. I can't get close to God. I feel like giving up. It makes me angry. These are some of the things people say to me because of their sometimes intense frustration at not being able to get close to the Lord they perceive in an intimate relationship. I think there's a misunderstanding here. Due to the overemphasis on feelings in the charismatic and renewal mo movements, unless we experience something every time we draw near to God, or he talks to us non-stop, we tend to believe we haven't met with him or heard from him. Therefore, we don't believe we are experiencing the required level of intimacy, and our response can be somewhere between anger and depression. Again, we're looking at the issue of unbelief. Beloved, we've become prisoners, both of the enemy and of our emotions. God wants to put things back into proper order. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 in the New American Standard Bible says that we walk by faith, not by sight. The overemphasis and expectation of feeling something has got us out of balance. And if we're not careful, searching for this will lead us into deception. Feelings are a little like the tail end of a dog. They'll go with whatever's in control. Our emotions are meant to serve us, not rule us. Ultimately, if we don't progress from living in our soul, which is our mind and our emotions and our will, we move into demanding. We move from receiving from God to trying to force him to give us what we want. We move from asking God to help us and submitting to him in love, from recognizing that he is the initiator and we are the responder, to demanding of him why he's not giving us what we perceive we need. I want this now and I want it now. I want this God and I want it now. Is really what's the underlying attitude. When he doesn't respond to our demands, we are most miserable. And ultimately we move away from him because we're dissatisfied. We don't feel anything when we're in his presence. And we either blame him silently or believe there's something wrong with us. And either way, a withdrawal takes place. This response seems to be particular and peculiar to moves where there are strong manifestations of the presence of the Holy Spirit. His presence such as the recent Toronto blessing. When these signs begin to ease off, we start working at it, seeking to keep things alive somehow. We stop receiving and start taking, and when we do that, we are doing something towards God that is quite violent. It happens when a former experience doesn't yield what it used to. We try to work the thing up, and we, come, we become demanding of God. In a meeting, We'll wind the PA up a bit. Let's get it a bit louder. Anything to try to reproduce 
what we perceive we've lost. It's the same with prophecy. We get massive prophecies over our lives, see our name in lights, and we want it to happen right away. But because we've no security in who we are, but in what we do, we need this to bolster our low self-esteem. Maybe we're even ambitious, so we go after the things the prophecy contains, rather than the relationship that it's holding out and opening up. If we would only go after the increase of the relationship first, the things spoken of in the prophecy will follow on. Prophecy points us to increase in our relationship with God. Everything God does is to draw us deeper into himself relationally. There's nothing in your life that isn't pointing to just that. But God allows all these things together with our reactions to test us. Beloved, he hasn't changed the way he is with us. We're told in Psalm 105.19 that until the word of the Lord came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The psalmist is speaking here of Joseph. The word of the Lord he'd received in his father's house about reigning and ruling over his family tested him until he was of sufficient integrity and character to be trusted with its fulfilment. The first thing that opened up for Joseph was a hole in the ground. The issue then is one of receiving to as many as received him. It all begins at that point where we cease receiving and begin taking. John 1.12 But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. He gives, we simply receive. His own received him not. So the whole thing revolved around whether they received him or not. Andrew Murray gives a lovely example of uh, in the days when people were in sanatoriums because they had TB. They would wheel the beds out into the garden uh, in the sunshine and all the patients could do would be to lay in their beds, weak as they were, and receive the sunshine. Beloved, that's all we have to do in our weakness is to receive him receive what he pours down upon us we're built to be receivers taking as i've said begins when the visitation eases off there's just not enough excitement not enough happening and our sensual desires are stirred sensuality is not just sexual it's anything in which the body and the soul find their satisfaction. The sensual has to do with our senses, anything, including overeating. It may be more and more expensive outfits, holidays, experiences, ambition, spiritual experiences, anything which we think will satisfy the must-have in us, the drive of our soul for satisfaction. When the Holy Spirit withdraws, he does it to test our motives. What are we really seeking? 
God himself or the sensation? He knows. It's just that we don't at that point and it's all part of our development. He doesn't withdraw because he no longer loves us but because we have need to recognise what we are becoming. Takers, not receivers. The cure is to return to receiving. To a celebration of who and what God is to us to look at how far he's brought us and celebrate that, to thank him knowing that he's always bringing us deeper into himself because that's his agenda. His heart is always full towards us and fully towards us. There's never a day when he doesn't rejoice over you with singing. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He'll take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Literally, that is to jump up and spin round with excitement. What a promise! And our hearts, well, they're always fully accessible to the processes of the Father. He penetrates between soul and spirit and judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Not so that he can condemn, but so that he might purify. Hebrews 4, verse 12 For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Okay, so let's look at something else now. I want to look at uh, process, but we need to set it in the light of the Toronto Blessing, because the problem for those of us who were involved in this is probably that we developed a culture of feeling and experiences over faith. The beautiful sense of being wrapped in Father's love, the manifestations, the grunts, the jerks, the hoes and the laughter were taken to be evidence that the Holy Spirit was on you, as indeed he was. Every meeting increased our appetite for more of the supernatural presence of God. We had a ball. But the purpose of the visitation of the Holy Spirit in the Toronto Blessing was to bring us into something which would start process in our lives. And in this process, the Holy Spirit would be the agent for what the Father wanted to do. So the purpose of this outpouring, or of any outpouring, is to get our attention, to show us how much God loves us, and to cause us to seek after Him as our highest pleasure. But somewhere we got stuck in the feelings and the fun. We didn't see that he wanted to move us into a deeper relationship with himself. We were still seeking the manifestations, the excitement, the adrenaline rush, and nearly missed what he wanted to do, which is to move us into process. Father uses two ways to develop us and the first is impartation. Impartation is wonderful 
it launches us into a whole new panorama of God's love and affections for us. Yahoo! We're on our way! With impartation for a season things are absolutely blissful. But sooner or later everything slows down and Father moves us into process. It's at that point usually we go back for another impartation. When the other one, the first one, hasn't actually worked its way through us yet. And we probably lost it, in fact, before we got to the door. So visitation then, which includes impartation, is an outpouring of God designed to propel us into a new place in the Spirit. It's a sovereign time of encountering God and experiencing profound change and it is relational. Everything Father does with us is relational. Our problem is that like Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration we want to camp in that place and stay there indefinitely with the experience. Well who wouldn't want to live on the mountain top? God will allow us to enjoy these things for a season. But Father has far greater plans for us than laughter and the other manifestations of his presence. At stake is the salvation of the nations and the establishing of the kingdom, the overthrow of the enemy and the emergence of the bride of Christ. So the second route is process which leads to divine acceleration. This route bypasses impartations and manifestations as Father begins to open up the truth about our life in Jesus. As he does so, the Holy Spirit applies that truth to our lives and everyday experiences. Process is about learning how to have joy in our relationship with the Father. Process is about thinking properly. It's about being renewed in the spirit of your mind. It's about working with God on our issues and our lifestyle with the Holy Spirit as our tutor. Process is about learning to think from our heart, not our head. In process, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, is our tutor and our guide, and he is with us 24-7. In this process, we learn about the nature of God as he applies his heart to ours heart to heart. The whole point of process is to maintain our heart connection with the Father in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And divine acceleration comes to a heart that has engaged with process. You can have divine acceleration but you won't get it on top of rush and hurry. You have to learn the first lesson first. Rest and peace are shock absorbers. In rush and hurry you're driven. In rest you're led. Rest therefore must become a way of life. We reject any pressure upon us to conform to anything but the image of Jesus. In all of this God is the one who chooses the route he decides is most beneficial for us. If you are in process and constantly desire impartation, feelings, experiences, 
then you're chafing against the fact that you haven't got what you want and you're out of alignment because God is the one who chooses the route which is best for you and you really do not know beloved what is best for you so if you are in this place today chafing against God's choice of route for you who's a silly billy then repent change your mind repentance and rest is the remedy you'll find that in Isaiah thirty fifteen. this is what the sovereign Lord says the Holy One of Israel in repentance and rest is your salvation in quietness and in confidence is your strength settle down let him lead opening this whole thing up then impartation encounter and truth impartation works from that experience and encounter into truth process works with the truth towards the encounter impartation works well with our emotions we have an encounter with God that enables and empowers us to feel his presence and enjoy his joy in us and then after a season process kicks in our emotions are sidelined and the feelings disappear now we have to learn to believe that God is present with us by faith God is cultivating by his Holy Spirit true spirituality within us and our soul fights every inch of the way we can see the difference between the soul and the spirit immediately by taking as an example how we pray when your soul prays it always has itself at the center so it could go like this Lord please give me the strength for this situation Father help me to do this I need you to help me to do this to achieve this Father the soul desires to to receive power so that it can do something when a spirit led man or woman prays they ask God to do whatever needs doing Father thank you that in my weakness you are my strength I submit to your rule would you please come and be my strength we must enjoy our weakness because it's only through weakness and vulnerability that God can flow he cannot and will not flow through your soul he will not anoint the flesh God is breaking the season of self preoccupation the constant measuring of me to see if I'm the same as everyone else if I'm experienced what they experience and if I'm not why not the answer beloved is that you are not the same because you are unique so don't seek to measure yourself in any way by someone else because Paul says you're not wise and he says that in 2 Corinthians 10 12 we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves they are not wise your walk with God is your walk with God and it will not be like anyone else's 
Holy Spirit has an agenda for us to form Christ in us that Christ might be all and in all Colossians 3 11 and 12 there's no distinction between Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised barbarian Scythian slave and freedman but Christ is all and in all so as those who have been chosen of God holy and beloved put on a heart of compassion kindness humility gentleness and patience there's a conspiracy going on here between Jesus and the Holy Spirit they are conspiring to develop you into his image for the glory of God I'll not leave you as orphans but I will come to you the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus come to conform you to his image essentially then the issue is always one of trust relational trust the Holy Spirit is always teaching us how to be in relationship how to trust the Lord and to walk by faith we're learning to see that problems and difficulties and spiritual attack are all designed by God to teach us to walk with him in dependence trust and dynamic faith Amos 3.3 says can two walk together unless they be agreed we can't walk with the Holy Spirit unless we're in agreement with him we're learning that the work of the Holy Spirit is not only to bring us to a place of trusting God but to bring us to a place where God can trust us he's looking for men and women of distinction people who can live with integrity and zeal in the most trying circumstances people who prize character above gift who cannot be bought off by the world the flesh or the devil after visitation the desert is always going to be the next stop for us when God has visited us in renewal and refreshing in order that he may produce a people of power passion purpose and purity he must take us into the desert he takes us in full and makes us empty in order that he may fill us again with himself the desert is a retreat into the very nature and heartbeat of God renewal was designed to enable the church to come into a season of preparation for what is to come God made us full just like Jesus caused us to wake up and fall in love with him all over again then he took us into the wilderness into the desert just like he did with Jesus Matthew 3 16 to 4 verse 1 as soon as Jesus was baptized he went up out of the water at that moment heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him and a voice from heaven said this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased 
Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Jesus is always our model. Immediately after his father has declared how pleased he is with his son, spoken audibly from heaven, and before Jesus has performed any miracle, he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And here we are talking about the very same Holy Spirit who indwells us. Why therefore should we think we should be treated any differently? Jesus is always our model. Whenever you get prophetic words over your life, you can expect the exact opposite of the word to take place, because God is now going to bring your character up to match that which is just spoken over you. It's a spiritual principle, beloved. If we look at the lives of such people as Moses, 80 years old, living on the backside of the desert looking after sheep when God calls him. King David, tending his father's flocks where he learned to trust God. Paul, 14 years on the backside of the desert, getting revelation before he goes to Jerusalem. Galatians 1, 16 and 17. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Galatians 2, 1 and 2. Then, after an interval of fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Our training is always in obscurity and it is never hurried. Beloved, this is where we learn how to trust God and how to be trusted by God. And all this is the work of the Holy Spirit within us as we yield to his will for our lives. The whole purpose of the indwelling Holy Spirit is that in the compelling struggle between your soul and your spirit, which you will experience in your time in the desert, your spirit may rise to a place of supremacy. If it does not, you will not inherit the fruitfulness that is set aside for you in the realm of the spirit. To be honest, probably most of us have an unrealistic view of what walking and living in the Spirit is really about. In our imagination, we see ourselves spending a quiet time every day reading and meditating on God's Word. We picture ourselves having a sweet time in prayer and waiting on the Lord, of meeting with Him in fellowship and having an encounter with the living God. Ah, lovely. In reality, that's not generally what happens. In truth, our quiet times are squashed in between other things, and we leave the presence often feeling as though our time has been dry and unproductive. Beloved, we're missing what walking and living in the Spirit is all about. 
Living and walking in the Spirit is being continually connected to the Father through the Holy Spirit and it is found in our identity. Just wearing the label Christian is a big mistake if you want to live and walk in the Spirit. Christianity is not a label, it is a relationship. A wife doesn't kiss her husband each morning because she wears the label wife. The relationship inspires the kiss. A father doesn't play football with his son because he wears the label father. Their time together is created by their relationship. Question, what is your identity in your relationship with God? How do you see yourself in relation to him? Your identity isn't based on the label Christian. Your identity is based on your relationship with the Father. He loves you. He delights in you. He's given you extreme favour. He is biased towards you and he's placed you in Jesus. The one place where you can get all your needs met and all your prayers answered. This is not a formal relationship. It is love-based. It is intimacy-based. He knows you and he loves you so much that he took extreme measures to make you his very own. Living and walking in the Spirit is simply going about your everyday life rooted in your identity as a much-loved child and staying connected to the Father through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Think of your relationship with the Father in terms of your mobile phone. We don't think it's strange that we can talk to our husband or children or friends on our phone in the middle of Sainsbury's. But if you transfer that to God, we think we have to have a reverent, quiet, spiritual moment and a special place to talk to him. Beloved, that's just not so. What if he'd really like to talk to you when you're doing your shopping? What if he'd really like to advise you on that pair of boots you're about to buy, but you're not sure about? In your normal, daily, household tasks, step into the Spirit and speak to him. Then listen to see if he's responding to you. You might be in the supermarket queue and suddenly God shows you a picture of a monkey on your back. Father, what's that? you ask. The Holy Spirit replies, You didn't deal with the anger you felt towards that person who just took the parking space. And right there, in the middle of Sainsbury's, you and God work through the situation. You're connected. What are you doing? You're living in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. Just then, he straightened your path. So walking in the Spirit is the ability to connect and stay connected with God in the ordinary, everyday things of life. The commonplace moves right alongside this realm of the spirit. So step out of your mould, step into relationship 
mix Father and the Holy Spirit into your day, just like you would call a friend or hug your child. Include that interaction with God throughout your day and you will find yourself walking quite naturally in the Spirit. Backsliding now there is a venerable Christian term and I don't doubt I've got your attention. Got to address it though. Falling away and going into overt sin isn't natural to us as born again believers. Why then do we ever do it? May I suggest that it is because we fail to recognize sin for what it is either through ignorance of God's standard or because we yield to the pull of temptation, whatever it may be. Even though in giving way to it we know we shouldn't and needn't. Beloved, we are letting ourselves be deceived into supposing that to give way to this or that inflamed desire, be it for food, drink, pleasure, ease, gain, advancement, sex, whatever, is what we really want to do. We're not in touch with ourselves in this. Because of our new nature, our hearts are now set against all this. So if we hang on to unspiritual and immoral behaviours, kidding ourselves that we're enjoying it, we're behaving in a radically unnatural way and one which offers deep violence to our own changed nature. In doing what we think we like, we're actually doing what our renewed heart dislikes intensely. Not only because it brings guilt and shame before God, but fundamentally because it is in itself repulsive to the new nature. The regenerated heart can't love what it knows God hates. Such behaviour, says J.I. Packer, is always bad medicine, producing sadness, tension and discontent, if not worse. Beloved, these are the first lessons we learn in Christ's school of holiness and we do need to keep coming back because we slip and they slip out of our memories and mindsets so quickly. The serpent calls me to forget. He beguiled me, literally, he caused me to forget. He's not changed his tactics one jot, he causes us to forget as he did with Eve in the garden. Basic lessons, basic disciplines, good habits, but ones we must learn because it's from them that we will move forward into knowing God and Christ-likeness, which is his goal for us, bringing many sons to glory. Hebrews 2 verse 10 in the NIV in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. God initiates, we respond, bride and bridegroom. Sin is dealt with. Forgiveness is always available. But watch your step. You don't want to become unconnected. It grieves the Holy Spirit and it will grieve you. It doesn't love you any the less, but 
guard your heart, beloved, with all diligence. So he's initiated, we draw near, and as we draw near we begin to know him. You can't be intimate with someone you don't know. Our knowledge therefore stems from our obedience to draw near and explore the nature of this great God whom we serve. To conclude this bit then, comparisons an old friend of ours used to say are odious. Beloved, do not compare your walk with anyone else's. You are unique to God. He brings you at the pace which is right for you and the way which is right for you and you alone. So be at peace, be at rest and above all cooperate with the Holy Spirit. This next little bit has an unusual title. It's called Hook, Line and Sinker, Developing Discernment in the Latter Days. And I, I just want to add something of a solemn warning. We are living in days of increasing deception. And deception when it comes does not wear a label saying, I am a deceiving spirit. I am a lying spirit. Beloved, if you think you're not capable of being deceived, you're in a very dangerous position. And there's only one way to keep from being deceived and that is to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in your life. To stay in the place that God put you in, which is in Christ. The enemy of our souls can only use the uncrucified parts of us. That which is of our soul, of our flesh, that's the only place he can legally work in. It's the only place to which he has access. This is why he constantly seeks to get you out of the place that God has put us in. He wants to get us out of Jesus and into our carnality. Unless we walk closely with the Holy Spirit and allow and cooperate with his work in our lives, we'll be unable to discern what is not of God in these latter days, and we will pray, fall prey to deception. I couldn't be more serious because I want to give you a very recent example which happened while I was in course of preparing this teaching just last weekend. A dear friend gave me some material on the end times saying that the person was a prophet, teaching on the same things that I was. The title was the same as our subtitle for Pilgrim Hall, uh, as in the days of Noah, so I was intrigued to learn whether or not I was hearing God correctly. However, sometimes I can discern things just by the cover of a book or the colours that are used, and I didn't feel at ease about the cover of the CD box. May sound strange to you, but that is the way it is with me. But I pushed these feelings away and I determined to give a fair hearing to the contents. As I began to listen to the material, I was disturbed in my spirit, as was Joyce. We were listening together. We both carried on listening for about 20 minutes until she turned to me and said, Enough! So we stopped the CD and prayed, asking Father if this revelation was indeed from him. The outcome was that we both heard quite clearly that the material was not truth, but deception. But the matter didn't end there. 
That night, Joyce had a dream about a young child of two or three swallowing something. In the dream, Joyce managed to retrieve something that was like a, um, pearls on a rope, which was in the baby's mouth, by pulling them out of her mouth before they disappeared past her tonsils. But subsequently, in the dream, Joyce discovered that the child had also swallowed a, a sharp, prickly object, which was a bit like the end of a, of, um, a brush, just the metal bit and the bristles. I mean, this is a dream now. Um, this object would have meant surgery in the natural because it was life-threatening. And as Joyce was saying in the dream, we need to pray about this, the doctor arrived and the dream ended. We always take dreams very seriously in, in our house, knowing that God speaks to us through dreams and through revelation, but dreams particularly. So when we prayed for an interpretation, this was what we got. The fact that this was a small child spoke of immaturity. So what we had on our hands was an immature believer swallowing something that could be potentially life-threatening. The doctor who arrived on the scene, of course, was Jesus. Only Jesus can get at something that we have swallowed, hook, line and sinker. Although some of the rubbish can be removed, when we've swallowed deception, it will take the truth of Jesus to eradicate it fully. And the words hook, line and sinker came to Joyce before she had the interpretation of the dream and they actually proved to be the key. Once a fish has swallowed this much, when it's taken the hook and the line and the sinker, which is the little metal object that holds it, the line on the bottom, you have got that fish. There's no way that it's going to get out of your grasp. Beloved, these are the days in which we must test the spirit behind things. We're warned, aren't we, in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. I found it quite disturbing that this lines exactly up with what we just experienced. This man calls himself a prophet and he has been proved a false prophet. So what we are enjoined to test is the spirit behind the person. What spirit is giving the revelation? In this case is it the Holy Spirit in which case it will line up with scriptures or is it another spirit? We don't condemn the person. I've prayed for the Lord to show him that he is being led off. Because that's our part we must do. We don't condemn him. We wouldn't shut ourselves away from him. But equally, there's no point in actually trying to persuade that person that they've got it wrong. The only way is prayer. This person hasn't set out to become a false prophet but by following an unscriptural revelation has had extra-biblical revelation. 
An extra biblical revelation for those of you unfamiliar with the term is revelation that cannot be substantiated from scripture. There but for the grace of God go any one of us. We must guard our hearts with all diligence. Deception of all kinds is going to become very common and the only safeguard is being able to hear from and walk with the Holy Spirit who is the Spirit of Truth. Earlier this year Chris Larkin released this word and it's headed up the age of delusion and a time of discernment. It doesn't speak specifically about the sort of um, delusion uh, that I've just mentioned about uh, false prophets but it talks about in general what is going to be released and it is God that is releasing this thing so she says this on the 21st of January 2009 I was praying for insight into what was really happening on the earth at this time of unprecedented global economic challenge as stated by the world media it was the day of the US President's inauguration and the TV and the radio were full of euphoria. Many people were seen hailing a new season of change with strong expectations of positive impact and restored hope that the world was entering a new era. The Age of Delusion So I prayed for some revelation into what the new era was really all about and the word came that the world was entering a whole new unprecedented era of delusion. A spirit of delusion specific for this time and season was subtly and insidiously penetrating society through the media and it was seducing people into believing that hope is possible through the wisdom and intervention of a man. I knew this was not just focused on impossible expectations put on the new president but that in the face of contradictory evidence mankind was being prepared for a great delusion in preparation for a whole new world order which mankind would be seen to bring about through wisdom in the face of global economic followed by political collapse. People will be deluded and delighted in the hope that will seem to suddenly be presented. This will come at a time when everything seems hopeless and all national governmental attempts to resolve the crisis have failed. There will be mass media presentations of this sudden solution and there will seem to be irrefutable evidence of the solution which will seem to have world peace at the heart. A bright new world will be propounded and it will be called the new reality. Language will change to include international phrases which will release new words to prepare hearts and minds to receive new understanding of how the world will need to be in order for order to come. Any argument against the new plan will be seen as futile and oops, sorry, <laughs> foolish. I looked up the word delusion and the definition was an unshakable belief in something untrue, not subject to reason or contradictory evidence. So this new age of delusion will be a challenge to the people of God on earth at this time. Spirit of discernment. 
The next day I waited on the Lord about what the church's response should be and received the word that just as this spirit of delusion was being released on the earth at exactly the right time in the eternal plan, so a powerful release of the spirit of discernment would come upon the people of God. This discernment was not just a spiritual gift available to all who desire it, but was part of a mighty release of wisdom and revelation that would be available for all those who are determined to hold fast to their faith during this time of turmoil. The spirit of discernment will have a powerful impact on the church. Many will receive it, but many will not be able to pay the price of receiving it. A verse which came to mind which I felt was a challenge to the church as being as the spirit was being released was Psalm one one five sixteen. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given into the hands of man. It seemed to me to apply both to what was happening in the world but also in the church. Mankind has a choice of how to live on the earth. The world will mainly look for an answer in the hands of men as they did from the beginning. But what will the church choose in this time of in this unprecedented time on earth? The decision made by the people of God at this time will be de determine their destiny as the manifest body and ultimately bride of Christ. The Spirit of God is releasing corporate and individual anointing of discernment which is specific for this time. Individuals will have a direct choice of whether to have ears to hear and eyes to see what the Spirit is doing in the midst of the chaos on earth, but also to choose whether to cooperate with what the Spirit is directing and correcting in individual lives and gathered congregations. Many will follow the ancient path of mankind's good ideas dressed up in Christianity. They will become even more deluded than those in the world through a subtle mixture of beliefs leading to deception about how the church should respond in this time. 1 John 4 1 will be the verse which will be most needed as this new era unfolds. However, once it is established and practiced, people will find that discernment comes very quickly and easily in every situation and a peace will be released even in cases of discernment of evil with a confidence and faith in God's power to overcome any evil. Mixture in the Church this spirit of discernment will be needed at this time, as there will be a need to discern what is true in this time of great mixture in what is being presented through the church. In the past, most discernment has related to discernment of spirits or discernment of right or wrong. Now it will be necessary to know what is right and true in the midst of deception. The economic climate will lead many of those who teach and preach to be seduced into giving the word for economic gain like never before. But it will be presented more subtly than ever before, and the diminishing worldly wealth of God's people will be diverted into pockets of preachers unless there is discernment. Wealth will be the issue, worldly wealth or God's wealth. That's the choice.
God's plan for wealth is always to establish his covenant, that we would be his people and he would be our God, Deuteronomy 8.18. There will be a greater ability to discern how to receive and release wealth for his purpose. The heavenly economic policy will be established in the people of God across the earth. The people of God will discern where to release wealth in order for the strengthening, equipping and releasing of the people of God. Tribal communities will develop locally and connect regionally, resourcing and releasing people. This will be part of the change as travel becomes more restricted and the global plan to contain people will be subtly evidenced. Local gatherings will see strong relational connections across previous divides and denominations. The people of God will begin to discern the true body of Christ without the deception of things that previously divided one from another. New connections and relationships will form and become strong, almost like local and regional tribes. Godly forms of church government will emerge like never before. The cost of discernment. While the release of the spirit of discernment seems like a rescue package for the church, it will have a great cost to those who choose to allow the spirit to be released upon their lives. Old ways of doing things, style, habit, culture, preferences will come under the light of the scrutiny which discernment will release. It will be an uncomfortable time and it will take personal sacrifice and courage to embrace and allow the spirit to search our individual hearts and minds and our corporate thinking, which many churches and organisations embrace in the name of Christianity, but much of which is rooted in worldly ways and self-interest. The spirit of discernment will be like a consuming fire and will not be compromised in a context of mixture. It will shake many and will change the face of the church. It will challenge control, not just the spirit of control, but human desire to control destiny. It will offer the opportunity for all to be truly led by the spirit. But this will not be something that the church can sing nice songs about. It will be uncompromising and powerful. Peace will also be powerfully released a different kind of peace than the world or even the church is seeking. This peace will be like an implosion into hearts, bringing courage and conviction and will be essential to enable individuals to move in discernment and obey the leading of the Spirit. Control is going to be the main target of the Holy Spirit in the church at this time. The Spirit will break bondages lifestyles and agreements with the world about what is true and the deception that mankind can come up with an answer. This will be a new age of faith, a new kind of faith for this time and season. Revelation will come about God's true kingdom government which will directly clash with the new world governments and also many church governments. There will be faith for supernatural provision, divine interventions, alliances and connections for kingdom government on earth. The body of Christ will have the mind of Christ and call forth and establish a new kind of leadership, locally, regionally and nationally. 
There will be new global connections and com communication links to ensure a global unity and global responsibility in the body of Christ. But all this will have a cost. It will be a time of not agreeing with the majority. The risk and reality of rejection, abandonment and loneliness. It will be a time of separation and realignment. It will be a time of witness. It will be a time of testimony. Each will have a testimony of what the truth is. The spirit of discernment will reveal the truth to those who really want to know the truth. Those who do not want this will rise up with loud testimonies of their truth and this will be accompanied by plans for change. But it will be the world's model dressed up in Christianity. The Testimony of Jesus Revelation 19.10 The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of all prophecy. The word testimony is the Greek word martyria, from which we get our word martyr. The testimonies given in this time of delusion will have a cost. The cost of a martyr is death. Something will have to die for discernment to be released and God's purposes to be established in the midst of delusion, chaos and the times on the earth. It's cross time, rising from death. It's choice time, but there is grace, peace and joy in the choosing. Once a choice is made, strength, conviction and confidence will be rooted in hearts and minds as a substance and reality of truth. People will then be unmovable in their faith. This word is not a future word, it is a now word. We are already in this time and season. Delusion is all around us. But the Spirit of Jesus, the name, the word, the truth, the way, the life, our life, abounds. And he is above all and in all and through all that is happening on the earth and in our lives. We do not have the spirit of fear, but of power, love and a sound mind in Christ Jesus. This will be the church's most challenging and final hour. That's the end of Chris's message. So, walking with the spirit of truth is the only safeguard we will have in the coming days. If you don't know him today, let me suggest you a way in which you may get to know him. It's quite simple. Just tell him you don't know him and ask that he would reveal himself to you. It will be his joy and delight to do so. He is so overwhelmingly enthusiastic about you. Finally, I suggest that you take a journal and for 30 days find an attribute of God by reading through the Psalms. Stop when you find one and think about it during the day. Mull over the attribute that you've just tripped over. You can then write in your journal what you've discovered about him that day. You're developing a good habit. I've done a short teaching on some habits of significant people in the Bible and if you want to know about this just let me know. 
For the rest, as Paul would say, please meditate on what has been said and above all pray about it. Find out if it is scriptural. Ask the Lord if what is being taught lines up with his heart and his word. Come back to me and share what he says to you. I will be delighted to move my feet if I find that I am teaching any error. Meanwhile, Psalm 119, 57-60 says this, You are my portion, O Lord. I've promised to obey your words. I've sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I have considered my ways and have turned my steps to your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Amen to that. May God bless you richly and thank you so much for listening. Amen.